Welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Danielle Vincent, and welcome to HJ Talks About Abuse. Today, we have two of the founders of yours in scouting joining me, Lucy and Shiana. Hi, both. Hi. Hi. So just before we start, I just want to give a trigger warning to anyone listening that we are going to be talking about abuse in scouts, sexual abuse and that sort of nature. So if this is going to cause you upset or concern, please do turn off and join us at a future point. So welcome back to you both. Our avid listeners will know that you both came on in June 2023 before we, we started recording and said that this has actually gone very quickly. And at that point, you'd had a lot of press coverage and, and what you were aiming to do was getting a lot of traction. And so there's been some developments. And so I wanted to have you both on to tell us about what's been happening and what's going to be happening going forward. So for our listeners at this point, you've already had 75 submissions from people to the website. And anyone who wants to, you can you can add your submissions. That's still live, I understand. Yeah, still live. Okay, so the three of you started up and it was the Good Law Project. And the focus was on changing to scout safeguarding and what was going on there. So how's it all going, both? Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's going very good. Uh, very well. It was a bit of a slow start in some ways. Because we, we got loads of media coverage. We were getting lots of stories submitted. We got like seven and a half thousand signatures on the petition. The bit that was going slightly less well was that we were kind of writing to the scouts with updates on this. And they weren't being particularly um, constructive about wanting to make any changes, at least in those first few letters. But yeah, we heard from them in November and they are acting on all our calls to action. So that was pretty good news. For anyone that wasn't listening at the start of this, what were the core things that you guys wanted and why? So the first one was that we wanted the scouts to, originally we phrased it as we wanted them to have a paid safeguarding officer in every area of the country. Yeah. The reason for that was that what we didn't want to do anymore was have volunteers who, like a chain of volunteers where if a kid reported abuse, then that volunteer leader they told would tell another volunteer, would tell another volunteer, and it would eventually go up the chain until it reached a paid member of staff at national headquarters. As we saw in Lucy's case and in quite a few other cases of where people have come forward, like often reports never made it up that chain. Like, because volunteers would be friends with other volunteers who have been accused and therefore they wouldn't report it. I think it's important so, to say in that respect as well. It's often it's it's family members, isn't it? It's generations of yeah. families that, that can potentially run these scout organisations in tight-knit communities. So as you're rightly saying, in your experience and mine, people report and then it sort of gets buried somewhere um, and, and never gets where it needs to be. So, it's very easy for people. There's, there were so many different barriers that 
would stop people that it was very easy for it to happen where it didn't go up the chain where you're saying it was family members long-term friends you know or they simply just didn't weren't confident in what they should be doing with it yeah and you remember it's just volunteers right like even without the whole family and even if you weren't being like nefarious or anything like it's not like you're necessarily a very qualified individual who knows a lot about safeguarding like your day job might have nothing to do with safeguarding you might get a report you just didn't really know what to do with Whereas if you had been trained, you would know you would have to pass it up straight away. I think so, one of our earliest stories says about that, doesn't doesn't it? Our earliest stories is someone working within the Scouts who said, you know, they, they felt they'd had very, very little safeguarding training. But luckily yeah. they were a teacher. And if that person you know, hadn't been a teacher, who knows? You know, they wouldn't have had any yeah. experience. With As you rightly know, teachers very much know exactly how to safeguard. But yet people in different areas of employment probably have no idea if somebody comes to them what the next step is. And the Scouts do have some training for that, but it's not like it's not as thorough as like training for teachers. So what they've now chosen to do is instead of have they're not going to have a paid member of safeguarding staff in every local area. But instead, what they've said is they've changed the rules for, and they've already announced this to all their members, that none of their volunteers, if a kid comes to them and makes the report of abuse, that volunteer just immediately calls the paid team at national. So it means that you just don't have that reporting chain anymore and there aren't places for it to get lost. I mean, you still have the problem that if you tell an adult, the adult might not call national, but you have that problem regardless because one member of safeguarding staff wouldn't be able to talk to every kid in the area. I mean, we often talk about this podcast in all different areas about the need for mandatory reporting. And I think that's just going to be something that's going to go on. But but I understand that it's definitely a step in progression because all of these volunteers have a direct line, as you say, in order to contact. And that does cut out the potential conflict if it's a friend, family member, someone they've drank in the pub with for 30 years is that, you know, that they should be immediately doing what that yeah and they don't have to worry about the tattling thing because what we've seen in some of our stories is that people do the right thing actually and will report it up to national and then if it turns out to be true and the person who did it gets in trouble then the local area can turn against the leader that did pass it on up the chain yeah i think it puts volunteers in a better position as well because they're less likely to get ostracized by their own community is there um anonymous way to do it at the moment have the scouts brought that in yeah yeah technically you could just refuse to give your name i mean it will become pretty obvious though yeah. you're, gonna, you're gonna have to tell them who the kid is and where where they are and by the time you're finished explaining why you know the scouts will probably work out who you are different isn't it bringing someone yeah. you don't know to tell yeah instead of reporting you know someone's child to them or you know your cousin to someone else that you know yeah, and you exactly. know that you've known for a long time if you're reporting yeah. to national you know whether or not eventually it comes out you've said it making that initial phone call is much much easier or email yeah. this so, is a really positive move a really <laughs> positive move yeah so that was the first one and then the second thing we asked them to do was to this is an interesting one it was to have the voice of people with lived experience in their governance because what myself and Lucy and many others have come across, including many of our 75 submitters, is that they will repeatedly tell the Scout Association what happened to them and why and what of the Scout Association's procedures failed. And then the Scouts don't really act on it or fix those. So we were asking them to have a way of having like 
people who have had lived experience being abused in the Scouts as part of their governance and safeguarding oversight to basically help the Scouts make their safeguarding better. Okay. Again, that's a real positive, I think, you know, change and hopefully going forward, that's going to make a real difference again. Because as you say, you know, both of you had experienced effectively knocking your head against a brick wall, especially in my role and you guys now. It's about doing the most so that people will feel that coming forward, they're going to face the least, you know, hurdles and getting to that point of, regardless of what the outcome is, that that the safeguarding is going to stop other people potentially suffering what they are if this person remains in a role. So anything that makes this process easier for somebody who's already suffered horrific things is, is a huge positive. What I think is really, really important is actually you can't understand how it feels to have been a victim without, or, you know, to be a survivor of abuse yeah. without having experienced it. And I think there will be, you know, potentially people with the right intentions who are going in and doing things in a way that isn't the best way because they yeah. simply don't know. So there, you know, there will be, you know, it, in my case, it felt a lot of the time that people just weren't bothered but I know, you know, I work with mentally ill children and one of the biggest things they say to me is, you know, you don't know how this feels. You yeah. don't know, you know, you've not lived through this. It's the same here is if someone's not lived through it, they will never be able to fully understand how their actions, you know, when the person comes forward affects, you know, who's put themselves on the line by coming to talk to them and coming to tell them that. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one for us to watch because what the scouts have done on that one is told us that they have commissioned a separate organisation who are going to set up a group of people with lived experience. They will then kind of provide the scouts with this insight. And also an interesting point they made, which is a bit vague, is they said that like that would be a way that people who had been abused could get support in terms of like, counselling and therapy, but they haven't really put any details on that yet. So one of the things we're going to keep doing while the, cam- the campaign's going to keep running, and we're going to keep an eye on that, see what they actually follow through with and has they given you any time frames of when they're going to do these types of things or again that's why I think it's important you know we need to keep going because it's all kind of early next year and there's no kind of this is the date everything's going to be happening up and running there's no like concrete the reporting thing has already changed though has it yeah yeah that all went out so that's all done it's more the stuff that takes a bit longer to set up that they're like we'll start working from january but we don't know when it'll be ready thing on creating a safe paid safeguarding lead as well i know shanna said they've not gone with our exact suggestion on that but i don't think we've mentioned that they are creating a team a nationwide team aren't they on that yeah i've got the email here and they've got a new team that will inspect how local local safeguarding actions align with national policies training procedures and through new approaches will ensure ongoing compliance and improvement. So if that's done well, it could be as good as what we were asking them to do. Yeah, in some ways, it's actually even more than what we asked them to do, because that one was a real surprise to me, because when we set up the petition and the campaign, our ask for inspection was actually an ask on government. It was an ask for like an yeah. independent inspection regime on charities, and the Scouts have basically chosen to do that for themselves with an independent that's like inspectorate which is really cool I didn't expect them to kind of do that and it's really good because one of their and kind of understandable frustrations of like some of their senior executives is that they're like on paper actually most of our safeguarding policies are pretty good they just don't get carried out locally as we're obviously seeing because all of you are coming forward with stories about how they weren't followed 
And I think this is a really good step for them actually having more of an idea of what is going on in their local areas. Because I think up until now, they've basically just been trusting people to do what they're meant to be doing. And obviously, if you're a bad actor, you're not going to. You're right in that respect. It's almost like a bad franchise of something that started off very successfully, isn't it? And, you know, as we've discussed before, if you had perhaps a family member that's run this for years and then it's handed down and with the bad habits and then it's handed down you know and I don't mean by saying bad habits it's sexual abuse but other things that are probably just organized poorly like other safety elements of you know when you're arranging trips of all of these sorts of things just yeah. badly management that if there's nothing that is checking in that the standard is how it's meant to be that naturally standards yeah. will fall and priorities will change mm. understandably as well what I was going to say is these these you know people put their life and soul into these groups and running these groups and if if you know they're looking at them it's 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 almost you know their baby so they don't yeah. want to believe they're doing things wrong and they don't want to believe that they're not following things and doing things as yeah. well as they should be they're kind of run I think it was John Cameron on the on the file on four on the yeah, file on four was saying yeah. that you know they're all run like like fiefdoms they're, they're all their own little kind of kingdom of yeah of, of scouting but they could all be run really really differently and head office yeah. doesn't necessarily know that. And it's interesting what you say, Danielle, about other harms, because the scouts have not been having a good year. It's awful. But that was like, from an internal point of view, like they had our campaign launching last year. There was a really tragic death of a scout on a hiker at Ben Leonard. He's actually from my, he was from my local area, same district. And they had the inquest into his death recently. And it's all this stuff of like, actually... The scouts come from a time when youth group activities, care wasn't professionalised. Like the scouts come from, like were founded at a point in time where like education wasn't compulsory in school. Like there wasn't safeguarding yeah. school. Safeguarding wasn't even a thing. And like I think if you were setting up a charity today and you were like, I'm going to set up an organisation of volunteers who are going to take kids hiking up mountains and staying on residentials overnight, you'd set them up very differently you see and, that now even with schools for school trips you, you know when I went to school you know you just sign your, your mum and dad signed a disclaimer and that was it and I, I'm sure yeah. even from your point of view Lucy you know if you're taking the children out for any amount of time that the amount of safeguarding and all the things that have to go mm. into it no matter how simple it is so you're very right there in your in your point about how you know things have changed since it was originally set up I just think it is disappointing though well not disappointing I'm obviously very glad the scouts have acted but I was reading the post office scandal stuff, breaking this, or breaking, becoming very publicly recognised this week. It's been in, in private eye for the last 10 years. It was very interesting. There was a comment there that was saying, like, it was only when we put something on TV and, you know, it's nationally seen and people are worried about bad PR that suddenly people do things about issues they've known about for years. And yeah. I did, did find that parallel. You're like, mm, very interesting that, me and Lucy and various others having one-on-one -on -one meetings with the scouts never resulted in any systemic change. But somehow, when you put out a file-on-four -file documentary and it's all over the BBC and like BBC Breakfast, suddenly everyone starts thinking, oh, maybe we should actually do something about this. I don't know. Someone I found it very funny about that last week and they rang me to say that to me. They were like, it's just like that, but bigger. Because obviously, yeah. They, they, yeah. You, sadly, you, you're very right. And I haven't, I haven't really thought about that. But even when you saw other areas of prolific abuse, like in sport, you, you know, until there was a Channel 4 documentary on coaches, people that had been going through civil and criminal trials for decades, 
nobody in the public seems to be very aware of it until it hits, you know, a mainstream TV or, you know, a, a newspaper that the general public it, take a great interest in. Yeah, because you see, like, there was a massive documentary on gymnastics, then Larry and I saw on that, and then that kind of broke and became a public issue. And then there was the one on football, and then there's this one on the scouts, and there was the Catholic Church dispersed somewhere in that midst. And you're like, obviously, if it's happening in one of those places, it will have happened in all of these places. Yeah. But, like, for some reason, we need a, do- like, a very specific documentary on every single one before any of them are under enough public pressure to actually do something. It's very funny how they're like, oh, just like it's, it's you would have done this anyway and it has nothing to do with your campaign. I found that very entertaining. It's always it's it's always not my friends, isn't it? It's always, oh, that couldn't yeah. be happening here. That's too abhorrent. And then they just shut off to the warning signs of it almost because it's it's too awful to admit that it could be happening. And I think, you know, culturally, we don't like to admit, you know, what a widespread problem with grooming and sexual abuse we have in the UK. You know, we like to decide that it's, you know, you know, a problem in Rochdale yes. with grooming gangs yes. and actually nothing else, you know, nothing else could possibly be going on. And it couldn't be a, a much wider issue than, you know, those pockets that we see in the news all the time. The statistics work out that we all, even if you don't work in this area or campaign in this area of having you, we all know somebody that has been sexually abused in their childhood. We we, we don't know it, but due yeah. to the statistics You're statistically of how many are abused, it's one in five. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I don't think people realise it's that high. Yeah. If it hasn't, you know, affected their lives or someone very close to them, I generally don't think that that people realise it. It's that high in this country. Well, if you look at, you know, if you look at a cohort, a school class cohort of 30 kids, six of them are likely to have been abused in every classroom, in every school in the UK. And then up, that's an average, so then up that for areas of social deprivation, like less well-off local authorities. It's It's pretty damning. So with inspections, again, have there been any indication of how often, you know, like schools with Ofsted, it's X amount every so often, or or is that going to be also part of the rollout and set up to see how that goes? Yeah, part of the rollout and set up, so it's another bit that we'll keep an eye on, see what they actually choose to start implementing. So you've obviously achieved a hell of a lot in 2023, shall we say. Other than, you know, you've said about you're going to be monitoring all the things we've already talked about. And what next for yours in scouting? We've got the uh, the positions of trust that we still need to get changed. So scout leaders don't fall under the positions of trust laws at the moment. So they aren't legally considered as in a position of trust. And there are other groups that will fall into that category as well, you know, where people are working with children in a moral position of trust but it's not legally a position of trust at the moment, which is you know, quite a grey area. The implication of that is if you count as being in a position of trust, then you cannot have a sexual relationship with a 16 or 17 yeah. year old under your care. Which, so if you're a teacher or a doctor or a firefighter or a police officer, you can't, can't do that. It's illegal. If you're a scout leader, you can do whatever the hell you want because you're not on that list. So this is basically shifting our campaign. The scouts have now run and followed through, have done everything they can really that we ask them to do. So now it's switching on to, and tricky in an election year, but switching on to government to say, like, you need to actually change your position to trust legislation. And you also need to think about this inspection regime yeah. being there for all residential children charities. And I think yeah. the positions of trust is going to be quite an interesting and difficult one because looking, it was changed a few years ago and they didn't go further saying that they were eroding the rights of 16 year olds 
by the more people they put into positions of trust. But I think that's going to be something we're going to have to look into it and, and you know, discuss actually the rights of, you know, a 16 year old as a child and the, how an adult does need to protect them and how that comes before any sort of kind of sexual romantic relationship. It's a reporting side as well, right? So the, when they made the change in, I think it was last year before, they added sports coaches and faith leaders to the list. And there were also like, yeah, those arguments got made. But then you're like, well, something being illegal only matters if you get charged. And personally, I think the law should be on the side of the most vulnerable. So if the law makes it illegal for 16 and 17 year olds to have relationships with their scout leader, I think that's the best decision to be in. Because then if the scout leader is absolutely certain that a 16 year old wants to have a consenting sexual relationship with them and keep it quiet, they're still going to go and do it. If that 16-year-old comes forward, that scout leader's screwed. But they have no legal leg to stand on. It's not a debate about whether it was okay or not. If a 16-year-old was consenting or not, they can't consent because it's illegal. And that puts a balance of power on the side of the more vulnerable party. Your point on position of trust in regards to coaches, you know, I've never been somebody who's gone to the scouts, but actually when you read the definition of a coach as someone regularly involved in caring, training and supervising, in some respects, it's pretty similar to a scout leader. I mean, if anything, it's worse. A scout leader has more contact with a child because a sports coach doesn't have to be taking a kid on residential trips. They could exactly. just be running a sports class in an evening. They're in a position of trust, but the people taking your kids away overnight or over week-long camps in the summer holidays are apparently not. Especially when you think of, you, you know, and perhaps our listeners won't understand this but or, or not know, because I didn't, is that I actually, when I thought of scouts and brownies and all of these different groups, is that it was only when I was talking to you both that I realised that, that the residential and the trips, you know, that they can be very far afield. It's, it's not just in a field in the UK. You know, you're getting on planes and going overseas and being trusted with these adults to look after you, which, you know, as a coach, you may never do. As you say, you might just see them after school a couple of times a week in the gym and never leave the gym. But they've got a different level of responsibility to as a scout leader. As found out this year in Korea when the so, yeah. entire world scout jamboree turned into a swamp. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, anything else you're hoping to see happen in 2024 with the campaign? I mean, it's probably worth saying that we are still keeping the campaign open for people's stories. So if anyone has an experience they want to share with us, it's still really valuable because it gives us more evidence to follow up with scouts on and it'll give more information when, you know, we're trying to get them to shape up exactly what their uh, lived experience board looks like and how their inspection is going to work. So don't feel like there's no need to share a story if you'd like to. I think the other thing that I would, I don't know how we do this, but I'd be really interested in seeing whether it's possible to get similar organisations to take some proactive action off the back of the campaign mm. without having to specifically go out and run the same campaign for the girl guides or the boys brigade yeah. or the cadets i think that'll be an interesting challenge for the year i think you'll you'll probably see great success in that because we've seen that in regards to the sporting world that you, you know one organization has had to have done the legwork and got it right shall we say and as we see the scouts are going to put in or try to implement which is going to be probably a learning and contrast process over this year and as you say you're going to be keeping a close eye on them and seeing how it improves to see whether or other organizations then take those models and implement them as well that's it hopefully they'll be kind of you know leading leading the charge almost and the other organizations that know really that they need better safeguarding will use them as an example 
so hopefully they do it well and they give the other organizations the opportunity to kind of see what they've done and you know following in suit well it'll be interesting to perhaps catch up with you both at the end of the year and see in 2024 what has happened and what has been implemented and what you think has been done well and not so well as I'm sure you'll both have comments on that to see the progress so anybody who's listening I will obviously link the website and different bits so if anyone feels that this has impacted them or they'd like to get in touch with my guests or make a submission or sign the petition by all means we'll put all the details on the podcast and our website so thank you both for joining me again and I look forward to um seeing how this all develops all right thanks for having us again yeah thanks for having us Thanks, listeners. As always, if anybody has any comments or questions, by all means, do email the HJ Abuse team. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favourite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse.com at hjtalks.co.uk